0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Our hope is that this sermon will instill you with a profound sense of God's love and that you might receive and reflect His glory to your community. From the letter of St. James, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. You know, it's, you may not know this, but there's a bit of a, uh, a debate what the first line is I will use for my sermon. And there's so much good stuff in this text for today, I wasn't really sure what to pick. But another good one is also this, aside from the shuddering demons, which I'll get to in a moment, the following, verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And uh, Many of us are aware of the current social media phenomenon of Twitter, where you break everything down into whatever it is, hundred and something characters. Little lines, little snippets are good for us to retain information. They're good mnemonic devices. For example, here's another one. You ready? Um, a good preacher, of which James is an example, a good preacher, it's, it is said, does the following. A good preacher comforts the afflicted, and afflicts the comfortable. You ever heard that before? A good preacher comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Now, as a preacher and a pastor, I'll tell you, everybody loves it when you comfort the afflicted. My senior warden has never gotten a phone call from that. But when I have to afflict the comfortable, sometimes it's not as well received. And it sounds kind of funny, but it's actually a really, really important pastoral Point, because it's this, that everything in our lives, every, every change we make in our lives is a result of affliction. It's a result, a result of struggle. It's a result of something being placed before us that we have to overcome. And if you think about it for a minute, it makes perfect sense. You want to work? You want to have a good job? you got to go to school. You want to have good finances? you got to save your money. You want to have a healthy marriage? talk to your wife. You want to be healthy? Work out. Eat right. You see my point, right? Affliction are those things that we do in this world which cause us to grow. They cause us to be changed. They're not comfortable. I'll give you an example. Affliction that changes us. One example, back in 2001, my wife Kathy and I, many of you know her, uh, we sold our beautiful house in the suburbs of Philadelphia, out in Chester County, Exton, Pennsylvania by name. It was a great house. We loved it. It was awesome. I was 31, 32 years old, left my six-figure job in IT, which I loved, said goodbye to our family and friends, packed up Amy, who was two, and my daughter Katie, who was six weeks old and colicky, (laughs) and we moved, packed up the fam, and moved out to a place called Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Is anybody here from Ambridge? Okay, well, just put your ear to my hand over your right ear for a second. Ambridge is was a whole different world for me. Ambridge is the quintessential burned out steel town. It's where the American Bridge Company used to be. They used to make bridges and steel. It's not there anymore. What's there? Well, nothing, really. <laughs> And so for us to move our, leave our beautiful house in Exton, Pennsylvania, where you could look out the window and see the horses frolicking and the bunnies nibbling on the grass and the birds flying through the air to Ambridge, Pennsylvania, when you looked out the window and you saw, you know, prostitutes and drug addicts in the alley. I'm not exaggerating. In a worldly sense, here's my point, that was an affliction. And in a worldly sense that was the three of the most difficult years of our lives together. But I will also submit to you today, in that affliction, in that challenge, it was also one of the most transformative. Why? Well, you can ask my wife, see what she says, but I'll tell you, moving from comfort zone, suburban, you know, area to a burned out steel town taught me an important lesson and that is at the end of the day you only got one thing and it's the lord amen so affliction is something which challenges us to move from where we are to where god wants us to be and the only way you move from a to b in anything is through suffering and struggle and affliction If any of you have in your mind the idea that to get close to God, you walk along the beach and sipping a latte, that's stupid. (laughs) It's not biblical Christianity. The real thing is forged in struggle because it teaches us how God gets us through it. You with me? Okay, so why am I talking about affliction? Because today we are in uh, Sermon 2 of our five-sermon series from the letter of James, the brother of Jesus. And today, James is talking about affliction. Two points this morning. How affliction, how struggle changes our behavior. And secondly, how affliction and struggle changes our belief. That's gonna surprise you, I'll get to that in a minute. But how does affliction change our behavior, point one. And then second point, how does affliction change our belief? So, point one, change in behavior. Um, James is a pastor, and a good pastor comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. And so James afflicts the comfortable, that's me and you, today with a series of questions. Chapter 2 verse 1 is an example. And they're questions that are laid out, but they're rhetorical questions. He's not asking you for an answer. Right? A rhetorical question is a question somebody asks you, but you, you don't answer it. For example, when I was in eighth grade and I was in trouble and standing in the hallway at St. Philip and James Catholic School and the principal, Sister Nunciata, walked down the hallway and saw me and she said, So, Mr. Rodriguez, why are you in the, why are you in the hallway today? And I said, I don't know, Sister. And she said, Are you a wise guy? Well, I said... Yes. <laughs> that was the wrong answer. Her question was rhetorical. But the point I want you to see here is James asks us a rhetorical question. Listen to what he says, chapter 2 verse 1. He says, listen, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in in our Lord Jesus Christ? <laughs> How do you answer that? Listen listen to it again. Do you with your acts of favoritism Really believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, he's not asking you for an answer. James is not asking for an answer. You can't answer that question. It's a rhetorical device, and here's why. Listen, rhetorical questions, listen, remind you of something that you need to change. Something you already know, but you've neglected it. A rhetorical question like James's question is a question in which he's asking you and Jesus is asking us, a question about our own integrity, our own life, our own sins that we know is there and so does everybody else and yet we refuse to deal with it. James's rhetorical question, and there's several, forces us to come to terms with something that we are deliberately suppressing, a fault, a besetting sin that you have not addressed either because you don't want to which is usual, or because you don't think you can. I'll get to that in a minute. What I want you to see as I move into this, James this morning, Jesus this morning through James, is deliberately afflicting us as Christians, getting us to squirm a little, to change a little. And let me ask you a question. Has anybody ever pointed out a fault in you? Has anybody ever, someone this morning said, no, I find that hard to believe. Has somebody ever pointed out a fault in you? Something that you already know is there, something that you wrestle with, and so does everybody else know you wrestle with it, because they know you. And it can be anything. I don't care what it is, frankly. It can be a short temper. It can be a critical spirit. It can be you drink too much, you smoke too much, you spend too much money, you give in too much, you're a doormat or you're a bully, whatever, that doesn't matter. Whatever that thing is which people criticize you for, fill in the blank, it's a besetting sin. It's it's something which we're doing and we're refusing to deal with it. You know it. That person knows it. Everybody around you knows you wrestle with it. Your boss, your wife, your kids, your spouse. And the reason when somebody criticizes you with that one thing, whatever it is, is so upsetting is because it reminds you of something you already know. You with me? So for example, if someone, if someone were to pull me aside today and accuse me of being a lousy golfer, right, which I am, <laughs> it's embarrassing actually how badly I golf, if somebody were to pull me aside and say, Rodriguez, man, you're a horrible golfer, I'd laugh and say, yeah, you're right, I stink. R- Rodriguez, man, you are a terrible basketball player. <laughs> yes, you know, Rodriguez, you are impatient, woo. <laughs> that's going to set me off. You know why? It's true. This is my, what I'm trying to get at today, friends, as Christians, what the word is trying to draw us into today is something that we know is true, a defect of our character. We've all got them. Something which we we are deliberately not dealing with for some reason. James is afflicting the comfortable. That's you and me. He's calling us out on the things of this world that we're doing. Things we are are doing that we shouldn't be, or things we should be doing that we're not. He's shining a light on something that you and I are suppressing willfully or through neglect. So here's my question as I move on. You ready for this? Where where is James calling you out? Maybe you are impartial. In fact, we all are to some degree. You treat certain people one way and other people another way. Yeah, we do that. I'll own that one. Where, where, is, the, where is Scripture, when you read through James, where, what sticks to you? What makes you go, oh man, that hurts. That one leaves a mark. That's what James is trying to get us to see, that, that Christians struggle with sin and brokenness. We're, not, we're saved, but yet we're also going from point A to point B. a good pastor comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. So here's the question for you. What is it that you need to work on? What is it you need to repent of if you claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And the Christian life, which we are all in right now, is a continual movement, right? It's not a marathon. I mean, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's a long, tough slog becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like the old man, more and more like what God wants you and I to be, and less and less like we used to be before, more and more like Jesus. And here's James's point. If you're not being changed, if you're not changing, if you're not moving along that line, James's point, would, we'll see this later, is, you know, if, James, if you're not moving along, if you're not increasing in holiness, do you really even get it? Do you really understand that Jesus has saved you and set you free? Well, if so, why are you staying stuck? And so James challenges us, friends, to be convicted of our own shortfall, to own it, to confront it head on by the power of God, to admit to ourselves and to others, man, I've got, I got to get, get chopping on this. I got to get working. I got work to do on myself, on my relationships. But James has to stop there. <laughs> this affliction, friends, is not just about our action. It is that but it's about something even more profound, which I'm going to submit to you a minute, and it might surprise you, so buckle in. James says, this affliction should change your behavior, but it should also change the way that you think. This affliction, this challenge, the Christian life should change the way that you think. Let me me ask you this. If somebody asked you to define faith, what would you say? If someone said to you, tell me, define for me your faith, what would you say? Well, if you ask a non-believer, they're going to say it's wishful thinking or it's, what was that guy, uh, Jesse Ventura, the former WWF guy, he once said that religion is for weak people. Remember that? 15 years ago. He's a knucklehead. But anyway, <laughs> or people would say that religion is, is uh, naive, wishful thinking, you know, fairies and gumdrops and the sun will come out tomorrow, little orphan Eddie. Not if you're in Pittsburgh, it won't come out tomorrow, but, but the point I want you to see is that's what a lot of people think of with religious faith. That it's, I just am hopeful, I'm confident, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting, right? Or even more dangerously, here's what I'm going to, this is going to surprise you. Most people think of their faith as believing in God. And that's not true. Christian faith, according to scripture, is not that you believe in God. Never has been, and it never will be. Christian faith is not just about the fact that you believe in God. For lots of people, for lots of people, maybe even for some of you, faith is in fact that very thing, an intellectual assent to a truth claim. I believe in God. James says, so what? (laughs) Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe in God? Good for you. So does everybody else. In fact, I'd submit to you, even people that say to you they don't believe in God, nonsense. Romans chapter 1, James says it here. Everybody believes in God in maybe incorrect fashions, but they believe in something, even people who claim to be atheists. How do I know? Because they don't act like it. You want to know somebody who's a real atheist who's going to really say there is no God? Read Friedrich Nietzsche. <laughs> That's how real atheists live, and nobody does it. It's terrible. Everybody believes in God in some variety. Even the demons believe in shudder. You say you believe in God, big deal. Faith, friends, in the church. Christian faith is not just, I believe in Jesus. That's good, but it's not the whole thing. Yeah. Christian faith, your faith, has got to get legs. It's got to get wheels. It's got to get some, some flesh on those bones. It's got to be faith which actually affects the decisions that we make. Faith. Faith. Pistis, the word, means trust. Faith is a verb, like love and forgiveness. It's an action word. Faith is what changes your concept of the world and results in a life which is lived differently. I don't care if you believe in God. James doesn't care if you believe in God only unless it affects the way you live. It's got to change you from the inside out. James says this very thing. Faith without works, action, is dead. You want a real faith that lives, that changes you? Act on it. A living faith, friends, a living faith in Jesus Christ, who died to save you and I, changes you. It's got to. And if it's not, I question the premise. Do you really believe it? A dead faith is of no use, and it's not biblical. So how does... So, sorry, Rodriguez, great. How, how does that work? How does this real faith in Jesus change us. Well, let me, let me give you an illustration, and I'm going to wrap up. How does this living faith modify, change us? And we're going to be talking about this for the next three weeks. Let me give you an example. My, uh, my former stepmother was a cigarette smoker for a long time. For years and years, pack a day, fine. Well, eventually, down the road, she decided to quit. She kicked the habit. She quit smoking, and she continually, after the fact, and it wasn't easy, it was an affliction, struggle. All growth occurs in struggle. But she continually, after the fact, post facto, described how good she felt about how, how listen, how wonderful it was to be free <laughs> from her addiction. She was, a, she was an encourager of other people to stop smoking, sometimes a little too much, but... She was an encourager of someone, everyone to stop smoking. Why? Not because she was pointing her finger in some judgmental way, but because she felt great. Because, listen, she had been set free. Listen, she experienced joy. She experienced life. She experienced change. That's my point. Friends, as Christians, we are called to live as spiritual (laughs) ex-smokers, People have been freed from the addiction to sin. People who Jesus has died to save. To give up our addictions to sin, to be changed. Let the old ways behind and live as a new creation. In fact, Paul says that very thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christo as the Greek. It means to be a Christian, to be owned. By Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new, behold, the new, look, the new has come. Friends, St. James reminds us <laughs> that if Jesus has paid for your sins and mine, if Jesus has un has freed us from our past, if Jesus has taken out the trash, stop living in the stink, somebody once said to me. Jesus wants you to live in victory. Jesus wants you to live in victory, to live lives of holiness, of goodness, of joy, to live lives that are being changed by Him who died to save you and to set us free. Shall we pray? Father, remind us that Jesus saves us not because of what we do, but because of what he did in our place. Remind us always that we are in continual need of growing and continual need of being changed by his power to live lives of joy and freedom and victory. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.